Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center and your host for this episode. Though its viability as a political party was short-lived, the influence of the Federalists extend well beyond the early years of the American Republic. After the election of 1800, the party's fortunes dimmed and the party itself dissolved in 1824. But its ideas have continued to shape American institutions and political attitudes up to the present day. My guest today for this episode is Gretchen Murphy. She is working this year as a fellow at the National Humanities Center on a new project that explores the often overlooked role women writers played in preserving the Federalist legacy. Gretchen, thank you for joining me today. And thanks for having me. So Gretchen, your work looks at writers who were active in the 18th and 19th centuries, women writers in particular in America. Who were these women you're looking at and what kinds of subjects were they writing about? Um, these women were a pretty homogenous group. Um, they were Federalists themselves, writing in the 1790s and uh, 1810s, or they were the daughters of Federalists who looked back to that period. And they were imprinted in particular by uh, Federalist ideas about religion, and that's the topic that's really central to my project. Um, Federalists believed that religion was necessary for um, uh, teaching piety and morality in a self-governing republic. It would be essential to uh, support religion, and they um, believed that religion needed to be established so that uh, it had a special status, um, usually involving uh, financial support um, for a church in a republic. So these are a group of women who are writing about uh, religion and politics, and they're doing it from a, a very specific point of view. As Federalists and the Daughters of Federalists, they um, believe religion is necessary in a republic, that um, we need religion in order to uh, promote piety and morality, especially in a self-governing um, self state. So um, uh, they identify strongly with the Federalist Party and with these ideas, and um, participated in the debates about religion during this period, or for those who are writing later, and some of these authors were writing later into the 19th century, they look back to this period as a way to um, kind of refight these battles and, and think about the role of religion in a republic. So the period that you talk about that they're either in or they're revisiting through their writings are roughly the decades that straddle 1800. 1800 is an important time in the United States and especially for the Federalist Party. Can you set the stage for us a little bit and remind us of what's going on in 1800 and talk to us a bit about what it meant for the political and religious lives of the women whose writings you're looking at? Okay. Um, religion was a kind of a wedge issue that united the Federalists and divided them from their political opponents who were the Democratic Republicans, um, especially uh, led by Thomas Jefferson, who uh, you know, won the national election, the presidency in 1800. The uh, Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution prevented uh, established religion in um, uh, 1789. But uh, that was only at the federal level. It was understood at the time that individual states could continue to have an established church, so meaning a church with a special status, usually financial money uh, coming from taxpayers going to the church. Um, 
And a number of states did, particularly in New England, and they justified it in a legal and uh, political language that was in state constitutions, that was in uh, state Supreme Court decisions, that said uh, uh, government needs religion because laws alone cannot enforce morality. They cannot um, uh, penetrate enough to really um, uh, elevate the populace. Laws will not prevent... Um, that will, they, will, they will not create the kind of moral populace that a self-governing state needs. And um, uh, this was, you know, Thomas Jefferson disagreed. He believed that religion was a private matter. He famously wrote that uh, whether my neighbor believes in one God or 20 makes no difference to me. It doesn't uh, break my leg or pick my pocket. But the Federalists disagreed. They thought that um, that there was a great danger to society if religions weren't uh, state-supported um, and that you know someone without religion would be less less likely to you know they would break your neck and 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 pick your pocket so the women that I'm looking at uh, have some uh, uh, they agree with this federalist sentiment that religion's necessary but they have their own kinds of questions about it um, one of them is about the kind of like technical rationalism of this idea. Is it a secular idea itself to say that we will uh, support a church because it's necessary for social stability? Um, another one had to do with what version of Christianity was necessary. When they were talking about religion, they were talking about Protestant Christianity, but they actually, you know, very often disagree. Those those who would agree that Christianity was necessary would very often disagree about what particular doctrine would be um, uh, absolutely essential, and um, that was particularly important with all the um, denominational fracturing that was going on at the time. And then another question was, where, um, with what conception of religion would women have um, uh, the most sort of opportunity to um, speak out on these issues if religion is seen as a private matter in the domestic sphere or as a public matter, part of uh, church and uh, state institutions? So the, the women writers are looking at all these questions. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the kinds of stories and maybe give us an example of the kinds of stories that these women were creating and what we can learn from them? Sure. Um, well, one of the women is uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. She's uh, one of the, the last figures in the study that, that I look at. She, um, after her famous novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, and after the Civil War, turns to writing about this early Republic period and um, she uh, uses it, I think, to be kind of in a, in a dialogue with and extend some of the ideas of her father. Um, her father, Lyman Beecher, was um, an avid Federalist. He was a congregational minister who believed uh, intensely in uh, state church establishment um, and fought tooth and nail to keep it in the state of Connecticut. But um, when it actually happened, when he lost that battle, when disestablishment occurred, he realized, he said, that it was necessary. And then he actually became um, very influential in pioneering different kinds of voluntaristic methods that evangelical Christians use to keep religion and politics very closely connected, um, to motivate the Christian electorate to uh, pass laws that um, enforce their morality, so temperance laws, um, 
uh, laws preventing the delivery of the Sunday mail. Um, so Stowe uh, wrote, for example, a novel in 1878 called Poganut People. And in this novel, it's set um, kind of at the climax of that battle that Lyman Beecher fought. It's the year 1818. This is the last year that the Federalists are in control at the state level in the state of Connecticut. And they lose against the Tolerationist Party, which was a coalition of denominational Christians and um, Democratic Republicans who were able to take down the Federalists over the issue of religious toleration. Um, uh, and the novel, in some ways, just shows the lesson that Lyman Beecher learned. The, the character based on him, there's a Dr. Cushing, who's a congregational minister, who's kind of a main character of the novel, uh, initially thinks this is the end of the world, but learns that religion is actually more able to penetrate and uplift the populace when it's separated from government. Um, the issue of temperance, in particular, is important in the novel. Um, he initially thinks that you need laws and the clergy need to work with legislators to brace up the laws to enforce temperance, the prohibition of alcohol sales. But um, it, you know, the uh, disestablishment actually by removing partisan animosity, by uh, purifying religion, seems to make this happen without any, any legal process at all. Um, people simply change their heart, decide they want to stop drinking because it's sinful, and the tavern closes. So it's a fairly simple story, and it's actually a lot simpler than the conversations that Stowe had with her father over the course of their life. Um, that's not how temperance happened and how the evangelical Christian activism around the prohibition of alcohol worked. It was highly organized, right? You organized a Christian electorate to promote these prohibition laws. They were called Maine laws, first passed in Maine, but spread around the country at the state level to prohibit alcohol sales. Um, and there's an interesting exchange um, when Stowe was transcribing her father's autobiography, where he said, well, what we learned is you don't need law. And she said, but father, what about the Maine laws? And he said, oh, well, it's different. Right? That's, it's egalitarian now if we all agree and we're all educated and we decide to pass the laws together. But coercion is still a really important element there. And I think what the novel can do is provide an ideologically simplified uh, version of the story so that religion can seem um, like a purified way to um, penetrate the populace without the dirty world of partisan politics, and yet at the same time provide a kind of motivator for evangelical Christians to think about ways that their, um, you know, that a certain understanding of morality can be imposed on a population, all of whom, you know, perhaps don't want um, the prohibition of alcohol sales. So she, in a way, to further the kind of work that her father did, had to diminish his role in the novel. And he's, he's not really the hero in creating the change that happens after disestablishment, because it appears in the novel to kind of come from below and from the people themselves deciding to simply change their society and improve it. So when you talk about her more complex interactions with her father, um, can you talk to us a little bit more about the kinds of, you're not just looking at the novels, you're also looking at lots of other kinds of sources that these women created and ways for you to get at their minds and their hearts during this time. Talk to us a little bit about what you're using for this study. Um, my primary sources are their published writing. So novels, poetry, plays, essays, 
but family letters are a really important source. And in the case of Stowe, the, that transcription of the autobiography um, this is a very strange document. Lyman Beecher's autobiography includes a lot of published family letters, this transcription with Harriet Beecher Stowe where she's interjecting questions and he's giving his answers. There's a real um, conversational mode there. In other cases, um, I'm looking at letters from uh, fathers to daughters, siblings, brothers, friends, um, to put the women in a, a federalist network and understand that um, that these were issues that were being debated, um, uh, you know, sometimes at you know formative periods in their youth. With the author Catherine Sedgwick, I'm looking at letters that she wrote when she was 10, 11, 13, 15 to her father, but she absolutely understands at that point in her time and fully believes her father's federalist ideology that the Jacobin Democrats are going to ruin the country with atheism and anarchy, right? She's imbibed that idea. And while, you know, she began as an adult to think critically about it, look at it differently, it imprinted her throughout her career. So the story that you tell her that these women tell about federalism is very much an American story. Um, but these women even though a lot of their stories played um, in the domestic realm, they were not just about the New Republic, they weren't just about America, and they weren't just about the domestic, they were also looking to other countries and to Europe in particular. What can you tell us about the, the purview they had onto countries other than the United States? The Federalist Party, really, uh, its formation was catalyzed by the French Revolution. That was an issue that uh, divided the Federalists from the Democrat-Republicans. Um, and uh, religion was a major part of that. The French revolutionaries um, uh, had a pretty aggressive, uh, sometimes uh, fitful uh, program of dechristianization around um the year 1793, 1794, they nationalized church property, made priests take um, oaths of loyalty to the republic. They eliminated the Sabbath by instituting a 10-day week and you know, put up signs at cemeteries that said death is an eternal sleep. Even uh, Maximilien Robespierre uh, briefly tried to institute a, a cult of the supreme being, um, uh, wrote to the Committee of Public Safety that uh, this sort of deist religion uh, would be better than atheism. It would be necessary for their republic and, um, you know, tried to create a more rational form of religion that the revolutionaries would follow. It, um, uh, a festival of the cult of the supreme being was actually celebrated three months before Robespierre was guillotined. Um, so for the Federalists, of course, this was terrifying. And it was also a way, I think, to um, imagine enlightenment rationalism, atheism, and secularism as a foreign force, something foreign to the United States, but a danger that might invade. Um, and I think it was also a curious mirror to them as well. Um, they themselves were using religion as a rationalist tool. And for the women writers that I'm looking at, that was a, a huge stumbling block. And they're sometimes recognizing that this actually makes them resemble what Robespierre was doing with the cult of the supreme being. Um, how rational religion should be was a big question. What for these women was the relationship between the public and the private, especially when it came to religious instruction and per political participation? Right. Um, so uh, religion 
privatizing at this time also meant that, in a way, it was feminizing. It was becoming the uh, something that was belonged in the realm of the home, the domestic home. And it paradoxically gave women a, uh, a platform for public address. You could speak out acceptably because you were speaking out about religion. You see this really clearly in the preface that Sally Wood wrote to her book. She wrote a novel, um, Julia and the Illuminated Baron. It's uh, set in France during the French Revolution. It's about the invasion of the Illuminati, who were this uh, mysterious group that were supposed to be bringing atheism and anarchy to the United States. And it was a highly politicized topic at the time. It was uh, warned about, there's kind of a paranoid panic about the Illuminati that was discussed in sermons and in political oratory. And the Federalists uh, accused the Democratic Republicans of somehow being in cahoots with the Illuminati or aiding their invasion. So when um, Sally Wood wrote this novel, she knew that she was wading into some very politicized territory and in her preface said, oh, this is not about politics. I, I despise female politicians. I'm not a female politician. This is about religion. And the revolution from religion is the proper terrain for women. Revolution from government is the proper terrain for men. Um, so you can see how she's using that as a kind of a cloak to still uh, engage. And she was actually called out on that by another of the women writers that I look at, Judith Sargent Murray, uh, who was kind of a mentor to Wood. She wrote her a letter that criticized the preface and said, if a woman can recognize something that's necessary for the improvement of society and promotes it, then her work is political. So if we believe that religion is necessary for the improvement of society, then it is political. They were kind of inseparable in her mind. So I think the exchange maybe shows that um, these authors uh, had to decide how they wanted to think about the configuration of religion and politics um, and uh, position themselves in relation to that, uh, to that, whether it would be closely connected or imagined as, as um, two separate realms. And, and how it was sold as well, right? How they spun that. Mm -hmm. um, how has this work been viewed historically by literary scholars, and how does your work contribute to current discussions about religion within literary studies? Well, these works, like a lot of uh, works by women, um, were have not highly been have not been highly studied. Um, they're considered uh, because they were popular, uh, sentimental, and the, and their religious focus um, really was a part of that. They were considered pious and religious. Uh, um, and uh, right now in literary studies, there is some return to attention of religion. It sort of fell out of favor since about the 1960s. And there's um, an effort under the, um, the aegis of the, the post-secular, a post-secular turn that's um, asking literary scholars to look differently at religion. Um, the post-secular um, uh, movement basically questions the secularization thesis, the thesis that says um, modern societies secularized. And um, a, you know, a modern society is then, by definition, a secular society. I think looking at um, the United States today, there's a lot of evidence to say that is not actually the case. And yet, scholars have often operated as though it were true, um, as though 
um, what's most interesting about religion, about I mean, about literature from this period, is ways in which it was moving away from this religious worldview. Um, these authors don't fit that, and actually, I think the entire topic of disestablishment really troubles that because both the um, legal language of um, church-state establishment has some very strong secular assumptions. Um, and so therefore really breaks down the binary between the religious and the secular and the way that they were then separated continued to intertwine the religious and the secular in the public sphere. So uh, I think the topic itself is useful for, um, for contributing to that movement. But really the, um, the post-secular orientation I think helps me get away from kind of simplistic views of these women writers that they'd only be interesting if they were somehow subverting um, the moralistic view of the United States as a Christian nation, or that um, that I would have to despise them for doing so, right? That I would have to uh, merely be critiquing them for the fact that they have this bigoted understanding of the United States as a Christian nation. And instead, what I'm trying to do is think about them as trying to solve a problem that we today haven't necessarily solved, which is how do you make democracy work without a shared sense of moral authority? So my next question is, easy, it's my last question, but it's easily a question that I could have asked at the beginning, and that is, can you tell us how you got interested in this particular project? Um, sure. I, I think what interested me originally was um, uh, the way that women were going back to the revolutionary period, and I was interested in their understanding of history, um, how they were retelling that story, and I started noticing patterns that made me think of them um, as Federalists and identifying them as such. And um, religion really came later in the project, and I think I was avoiding it for a while. I didn't want it to be central. Um, but I've enjoyed the way that I've had to kind of retrain myself and go back to some um, scholarship from long ago in American studies, some sort of the era of Perry Miller and some of the mid-20th century literary scholars um, to, to really understand an entire aspect of the culture that um, that my graduate training in the 1990s really didn't give me. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.